Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. In church we carry on in first uh, Samuel we are in chapter 13 tonight. First Samuel chapter 13. reads as follows Saul lived for one year and then became king and when he had reigned for two years over Israel Saul chose 3000 men of Israel 2000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel and 1000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin the rest of the people he sent home every man to his tent Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba and the Philistines heard of it and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying let the Hebrews hear and all Israel heard it and all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. and some hebrews crossed the fords of the jordan to the land of gad and gilead saul was still at gilgal and all the people followed him trembling he waited seven days the time appointed by samuel but samuel did not come to gilgal and the people were scattering from him so saul said bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings and he offered the burnt offering As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering behold Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him Samuel said what have you done and Saul said when i saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the philistines and mustered and mikmash i said now the philistines will come down against me at gilgal and i have not sought the favor of the lord So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, "You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you." And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with him stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. 
And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned to Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Just thus far, in God's word, let us pray once more. Lord, this is your word. It is history, and yet it is much more than history. It is truth unto us, even tonight. Lord, I pray, speak through me. I pray, speak in spite of me. Teach your children your ways through your word. Teach me your ways through your word. Sanctify us this evening unto your glory, I pray. Amen. I have titled tonight's sermon, The Fledgling King, Saul, the immature king, the inexperienced king, the king who perhaps showed some sort of promise here or there, but for the most part, history remembers him for his failures, his foolishness, his sin, the king who was so often out of his depth, even as we find in this passage. We find him here in this chapter in the first few years of his reign. Verse 1, he lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years, he chose 3,000 men of Israel. We are familiar with David's story, anointed as a young boy, but waiting years and years before one day becoming king. In the same way, Saul's ascension to the throne was not instantaneous. He was anointed, chosen as king in the previous chapters. Some events unfolded. There was even some opposition to his kingship. There was process, and finally now, in this verse, he lived one year, and then he became king. The first king of Israel. The first man to stand as king over the people of God. Give us a king, Samuel, the people asked. Give us a king who will judge us like the nations. They requested this in chapter 8. Samuel warns them, your king will be cruel. Your king will take your sons and your daughters from your homes. Your king will not all be butterflies and rainbows. They will not listen. They insist, give us a king, Samuel, that we may also be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. One of the 
commentaries I've encountered as we've been going through 1 Samuel, it put this heading over David's life, the man after God's own heart. This is well known to us. Over Saul's life, it put this heading, the man after man's heart. Before Saul was king for even a single day, before he lifted a finger, the people knew exactly what sort of king they wanted. And in this chapter, Saul is that king. It reminded me of Jesus. As you look through the Gospels, you realize that people were expecting a very different sort of Messiah. One who would make their nation great again. One who would bring liberation from Roman rule. But Jesus was not the Messiah they wanted. Here the people want a certain kind of king. And it did not take long. Even in his fledgling years, Saul gave them exactly what they wanted. To his own shame, he lived up to their expectations. My first point, foolishness. Foolishness. I see much foolishness in how this story unfolds. I see foolishness in Saul's actions. We've sort of come to take it for granted that the Israelites were just in constant war with the Philistines. (laughs) I've even heard it used in our modern Christian circles in reference to those who oppose us. Bunch of Philistines. And so when we read in verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. It sounds natural. Of course he would. Why wouldn't he? Consider this verse earlier in 1 Samuel, summing up Samuel's life as judge over the people of God. Chapter 7, verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of God was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel, all the days of Samuel. In contrast to that, consider this verse summing up the life of Saul, chapter 14, 52. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself all the days of Saul. Part of what we are witnessing in this narrative Samuel retiring in the previous chapter. The baton has been handed over. Now it is Saul's turn to shine. What's the first thing, or one of the first things on his agenda? Recruit an army, start a war. Is this not a holy war, you may ask? Are are not the Philistines the enemies of God? Isn't this justified? Consider for a moment... What isn't in this text? What is absent from this act of war? What don't you see? Here's a question. Where is God? Two chapters earlier, you'll remember the Ammonites besieged one of the cities. Saul hears about it, and the text is clear. Chapter 11, verse 6 The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. God, the Spirit of God, sparked Saul to life in the defense of the people of God, and he was victorious that day over the Ammonites. At the end of that battle, Saul was given the opportunity to put to death 
those who opposed his kinship. His response on that day was this. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Hold on to that thought. Today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. That's two chapters earlier. Two chapters later, chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Here's my point. The Spirit of God in chapter 13, the clear instruction of God in chapter 15, God probing his people into righteous action against God's enemies. Those things are absent from today's text. Is the fledgling king perhaps perhaps trying to prove himself? Remember what the Israelites wanted. Give us a king who will go before us and fight our battles. And so Saul gathers an army. And so Jonathan attacks a garrison. He defeats a garrison. (laughs) One garrison. One outpost. One small Philistine outpost. It is an act of war. But it is not yet open war. It is a surprise attack on a small outpost of Philistines. The smaller country, Israel, attacking the outpost of the greater nation, Philistine, reminding them, we are not pushovers. We do not fear you. We now have a king to lead us. Beware. You will not defeat us as easily as you did in centuries past. And so the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Saul makes it known. He he spreads the news loudly throughout the land. We are at war once more. Where once we were weak and the Philistines could do as they pleased with us, today we go to war. Where once our existence meant nothing to them, today we are once more a stench unto them. Today, notice this, it is no longer today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. No, no, no. Today, Saul, funnily funnily enough, not Jonathan who actually fought the battle, But it is Saul, your king, who has defeated the garrison of Philistines. Perhaps this king is getting too big for his shoes. Perhaps this marks the beginning of the pride that caused Saul to, a few chapters later, build an altar to himself. This is a rallying cry. Come join your king. Come fight for your king. And so the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. I think think Saul is stuck in the events of two chapters ago. Remember the Spirit of God coming upon him, provoking him to righteous anger and defense of the people of God? 
on that occasion, on that occasion, he issued a rallying call to all the people. And the text says in chapter 11, the dread of the Lord fell on all the people and they answered the call on that day. And on that day, the people of Israel numbered 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. That was then. That was the Spirit of God at work then. What about now? The king has started a war. The king has issued a rallying cry. The king calls for aid. Who will answer? No one. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. In more recent history, the thought that came to my mind was Pearl Harbor. The Japanese launched a surprise attack on America. On that day, on that day, they achieved decisive victory in that specific battle. But their victory came at a cost. They awoke a sleeping giant, and it could be argued that until that point, the war hung in the balance. That day they celebrated, but really it marked the beginning of the end, and ultimately they would lose that war. Saul has acted foolishly. He assumed too much. He started a war his people may have wanted, but it seems they are ill-prepared to fight. And Saul now finds himself backed into a corner. The bear has been poked. The hornet's nest has been poked. They have awoken their sleeping enemy. And Saul finds the little army that he had to begin with, 3,000. It is running for the hills. This fledgling king, he really has no idea what he is doing. He has acted foolishly. That is my first point, foolishness. My second point Disobedience, disobedience, sin. His army scattering before his eyes. What does Saul do? Verse 8, he waited seven days, a time appointed by Samuel. Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering before him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. 
for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. We may pity Saul, perhaps. He seems backed into a corner. But it is his own foolishness, his own big-headedness that has landed him in this pickle. His army is evaporating before his eyes. Samuel has missed his appointment. And so Saul, Saul reaches for the holy heavens, but he reaches with unholy unconsecrated hands with the smell of burnt flesh in the air of course Samuel turns up one commentator noted that if Saul had but waited one more hour, less than one more hour, it would have been sufficient but he did not and so Samuel arrives oh Saul, Saul what have you done Samuel (laughs) You don't understand. My army was scattering in fear. I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. I forced myself to seek the favor of God. If I was Samuel, I would have been tempted to ask, why did you not start with that in verse 1? Why did you start a war without first seeking God's direction? But that is not, that's not what's held against Saul here. What does Samuel say? Oh, Saul, Saul, you fool. You fool. You have disobeyed God. You have acted presumptuously. You have disobeyed the holy command of the holy God. You fool. You have cost yourself the kingdom. You have done foolishly, Saul. You have sinned against God. Here's a question. What is Saul's sin? in this matter? What is so grievous that costs him the kingdom? His kingly line shall now end with a grand total of one. God has sought another. What is Saul's sin? In fear, in impatience, in desperation perhaps, he acted beyond the bounds of God's instructions. What are God's instructions? God's instructions, God's law, God's pattern that he instituted was this. You can find some of it in Exodus 28, where the clothes and traditions and attitudes of the priests are described. These they should have when approaching the holy place. These they should have when making sacrifices to God. You can find some of this even in the next chapter, Exodus 29, when Aaron and Aaron's sons are set aside, consecrated for the holy duty of priesthood. You can find some of this in Numbers 3, when the Levites are set aside to minister in the tabernacle. You can find some of this in Deuteronomy, and so on, and so on, and so on. This is God's pattern. God exercises selectiveness, upon those who may come near to him. He exercises selectiveness upon those who may offer sacrifices to him. God is approached on his terms, not our terms. The creator decides how his creation ought to seek him 
and honor him and glorify him. We, the creation, we don't get to make this up as we go along. Why is this important? Why is this necessary? Because the great divide, the great divide between us and God, it is not crossed by human invention. Because the stench of sin that we walk with from the day we are born to the day we are saved, it is not removed by human effort. Because every priest, every consecration, every ritual, every ritual surrounding purity, every sacrifice done with the fear of God by those set aside by God, every safeguard that was put in place, it was but a foreshadowing that one day, one day there will be a great high priest and he will make the greatest sacrifice of all. Because Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all the rest of them, they are pointing us to this great high priest in Hebrews. He who has secured our fate and this great high priest couldn't just be anyone on a bad day acting out of desperation trying to remedy some past foolishness. No, it was pure It was holy. It was divine intention by the all-wise God that his son should die on that cross for our sins. The sacrifice was not one of desperation. It was one of holy intention. Because God didn't run out of options when he sent Jesus. Jesus was his divine plan to cross the great divide and to heal the wounds of sin. God was selective because one day he would be selective, even with his own son, his only son. He would consecrate him unto death on the cross for the sin of all mankind. Do you see? Do you see how Saul in his faithlessness, in his impatience, in his presumptuousness in taking up this holy sacrifice with unholy hands? Do you see how this is an abomination before God? unknowingly in desperation Saul reaching about in the dark trying to remedy his foolishness he makes an unlawful sacrifice and in so doing he spits on the cross the law fulfilling sin forgiving victory securing sacrifice the common man does not enter God's presence based on his commonness nor the king by his kingliness, nor the poor by their poverty, nor the rich by their riches, nor the desperate by their desperation, nor the pitiable by whatever pity their existence provokes in others. All shall enter. If they are to enter, all shall enter on God's terms. By the blood of the Lamb, by the great high priest who has gone before us, This is how we enter his presence with confidence. Believer, this is your salvation. The holy sacrifice was made once and for all and your sins are forgiven in the death of Jesus on the cross. Unbeliever, if you would believe, this too is your salvation. Not to reach about in the dark and desperation seeking a God to fix your foolishness, but to open your Bible to hear the word of God preached, to repent and believe that your sins are forgiven in the death of Christ on the cross, and if your sins are forgiven in his death, so too you have eternal life in his resurrection. Unbeliever, will you believe?
Saul, you fool, you have sinned against the Holy God. My last point as we close, what do you get when you add foolishness and disobedience? What do you get when you add warmongering with sin? What do you get when you act of your own wisdom trying to prove to the world how great a king you are and then it doesn't work out and you see your life flash before your eyes and you assume God can magically fix your problems if you just make a quick sacrifice. And so you look up to holy heaven and you try and bring God down using unholy means. What do you get when you do these things? Christian and non-Christian alike, be warned, nothing good will come of it. What did Saul get? He got a nation in shambles. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. (laughs) He started with 3,000, and now he has 600. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash, and raiders came up out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual, another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. <laughs> now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrew make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle, and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in any hand of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Give us a king, Samuel. We want a king to fight our battles. There are but two tragedies in this life. The first is not getting what you want. The second is getting what you want. Here is your king. He started with 3,000, now he has 600. Here is your king starting wars he cannot finish. Here is your your king thinking he can twist the arm of God with an unworthy sacrifice. Here is your king, your enemies who were once subdued by the hand of God during the times of Samuel. Now they roam about your country freely and your king is hopeless to stop them. You wanted a king, here he is. If this wasn't so tragic, it would be funny. You're trying to fight an enemy. They have swords and spears, you do not. All you have is a bunch of farming implements and tools, but even for those, you need your enemy to sharpen them. And so you pay your enemy to sharpen Your tools is pathetic. You wanted a king. You think he can do better than God. You think you can do better than God. 
is your king. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we consider your word. We pray, we sing as those who who know that on that cross of Calvary it was a worthy sacrifice. It was the great high priest who goes before us. So we thank you. Oh Lord, if it be, if it be that there are those who are stumbling along, acting foolishly, acting sinfully, oh Lord, won't you turn their eyes to you? Turn their eyes not to unholy means, trying to get right with God. Turn their eyes to the work of Jesus, finished on that cross for our sins. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.